You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Now, when we go through difficult seasons in our lives... We often feel entitled that God owes us an easy season to follow the hard one. But our sinful arrogance is exposed whenever we think God ought to do things our way because we're mistaken. The Lord has his purposes, even in times of trial and even in times of suffering, even when they seem to come back after back after back. Because it's through those difficult seasons that the Lord helps us to grow in godliness It's often through such seasons that God advances his kingdom. We've been following the life of David. And we might expect, as we've seen in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel chapter 1, that Saul is now gone, David has mourned him, and now David's life has to get easier. So we think. The turmoil of his life on the run, running from a murderous Saul, it should now transition into a stable and flourishing kingdom, right? Well, not quite. The transition from the kingdom of Saul into David ushers in a period of seven years of troubling civil war in Israel. These seven years are going to strain the young king of Judah, putting pressure on his character Indeed, we'll see how it exposes his weaknesses and how it forces him to grow in his leadership. But yet, throughout these troubling seven years, the Lord will establish his kingdom through his chosen king, David. After the death of Saul and Jonathan, the stage is largely set for David to come into the kingdom, and his kingdom starts small, like a mustard seed, if you will, It's the smallest of all the seeds, Jesus says, but yet it grows large and spreads widely, and so it is with the kingdom of God. But the growth and the advance of God's kingdom will always have those who oppose that kingdom. When Jesus speaks of John the Baptist, he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And so we come to the early days of David's reign as king amidst a divided Israel suffering grave violence. The chapters before us, as you will find out, are Shakespearean in their drama. Rivalries, revenge, betrayal, lies, suspicion, murder, sorrow, and so much more. You will sense the the chaos and the confusion and the instability as David tries to lead his small kingdom of Judah. But yet through all those difficulties, David will remain innocent. He will refuse to take the kingdom by violence, and thus he will unite the kingdom together. But we begin by seeing just a stark contrast between David and his predecessor, Saul. Because after Saul's death, David inquires of the Lord about his next steps. Let's begin reading in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. 
So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. You know, the differences between David and Saul couldn't be more apparent. We see him as soon as it starts. Saul, if you remember, is the one Israel asked for. It's in his name. Yet Saul so frequently acted presumptuously without asking the Lord, without consulting the Lord. He just did what he thought was best. But David is the man after God's own heart. And he immediately asked the Lord what he should do next. And here we see, this is the guy. This is the king that Israel needs. Here is the king God had chosen for himself. And so David leaves behind his home base in the Philistine town of Ziklag, and he moves all of his forces to Hebron. Hebron was an important city in southern Judah. The town had a special connection to Abraham, and so it will be that God will begin to bring his worldwide blessing through the mustard seed of a kingdom of David and Hebron. And David's tribe, Judah, anoints him as king. The kingdom has begun. It has started. It is coming. But it will be some time before Israel together would recognize David's kingship. Thus begins seven years, seven years where David, king of Judah, works to unite all of the tribes of Israel under his leadership. And so David begins in verses four through seven, you can look at them there, to show his appreciation for the town of Jabesh Gilead for their loyalty to Saul and ensuring that he was buried properly. And even though he is genuine in his appreciation for them, we can read and see that David is, is working, even with Jabesh Gilead, to try to unite them under his leadership. But Jabesh Gilead and the rest of Israel don't rally around God's chosen king. Instead, they plan to rebuild whatever was left of the house of Saul. The only one successor to the throne remained. There was only one guy left in the the lone son of Saul, who for whatever reason wasn't in the battle of Mount Gilboa, where all, Saul and all his sons died. There's only one guy left. His name is Ishbosheth, and he inherits Saul's throne. Let's read about it in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner is the kingmaker of Ishbosheth. Now, who is Abner? Well, Abner appears first in 1 Samuel chapter 14. He's introduced as Saul's cousin and the commander of Saul's army. You may remember Abner's failure to protect Saul when David snuck into Saul's camp and stole the king's spear. And David sort of mocks him. But, but Abner is a loyal commander. Even after Saul's death, his devotion to Saul's house continues. And by this point, Abner is an old man, he's a respected general, 
And his army allows him to wield incredible political influence on the next king. But Abner chooses to throw his lot in to anoint Ishbosheth as king, even though Abner and all of Saul's house knew that the Lord was cutting out the house of Saul and he was handing the kingdom over to David. Jonathan knew it, Saul knew it, Abner knew it, as we'll soon see. But Abner chooses to be loyal to the king Israel asked for rather than the king God had chosen for himself. And so Abner reveals, I think, something about us. It's much easier to maintain the status quo of what we know than to embrace the drastic change God's kingdom requires of us. Maintenance is easier than repentance. Abner uses his strength, his influence, to continue the crippled house of Saul by making Ishbosheth king. Now, Ishbosheth is a weak and indeed vulnerable king. Really, the only reason he even becomes king is because of Abner's powerful endorsement. And on top of that, we'll see he's not a very competent king either. We're tipped off to a short reign of failure. He only lasts two years with his kingship coming to a quick, sputtering, and indeed murderous end. So the scene is set for a civil war between Judah and the rest of Israel. God's people are split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel rallied around Ishbosheth. The southern kingdom of Judah rallied around David. And these two rival kingdoms face escalating tension as David's kingdom keeps growing stronger, but Ishbosheth's kingdom begins to flounder. This division between Israel foreshadows Israel's future, doesn't it? After the reign of Solomon, where the kingdom splits into a yet again. And even though David will be the one who unites everyone together, the kingdom will again fracture along similar lines, with most of Israel rejecting the Lord's chosen house, the king from the lineage of David. So the remainder of 2 Samuel chapter 2 describes the growing tensions between Israel and Judah in a civil war. The drama begins with Abner being a provocateur between these two camps. Let's keep reading in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore the place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So what's going on here? Abner leaves the capital city of Ishbosheth's empire, he crosses the Jordan, and he brings his army south to Gibeon, which was right on the line between David's kingdom and Ishbosheth's kingdom. And so David's army, understandably, goes to the border to prepare for a possible invasion. 
So with each army stationed across the pool of water, Abner proposes a contest between the two armies. The most likely was a proposal for representative combat, very similar to what Goliath proposed to Israel. You take your guy, take my guy. Except this time they choose 12. 12 are selected from each side, and the winner then could boast that they were the stronger army, and ultimately that God favored this kingdom over the other. Some have suggested that this match was intended to be just a friendly exhibition with no killing taking place. But whether it was supposed to be a non-lethal sparring match or a gladiatorial fight to the death, the conflict takes a bloody turn. The men slay each other. 12 and 12, all of them dead. 24 men die in battle. And it is already a horrific reminder, isn't it, of the true nature of a civil war? Brothers killing each other. And what began as a seemingly minor conflict escalated and it engulfed both armies. The text says the battle was very fierce that day. Both the servants of David, though, they beat Abner and the men of Israel. And in verse 18, we're getting a quick aside to give further insight into the family relationships of Joab, who was the commander of David's army. Look at verse 18. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel was as swift a foot as a wild gazelle. Now, what's going on here with these family relationships? Well, Zariah was David's sister. This is David's sister. This means that her three sons, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, were David's nephews. Now, the conflict escalates, and we're told that the zealous and gazelle-like Asahel chases after the fleeing Abner, and Abner urges Asahel, stop, stop chasing me, let me go, I'm fleeing from battle, but Asahel refuses. He's laser-focused, running like that gazelle to catch Abner, and then Abner stopped just as Asahel got close and struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear. Now, the butt of his spear was probably sharpened in order to be able to thrust it in the ground when not being in use. But on this occasion, the skilled and experienced warrior Abner used it as an unexpected attack on his presser, thrusting it behind him, spearing Asahel right through the belly. And Asahel falls dead on the battlefield. Now, the two remaining brothers, Joab and Abishai, are filled with grief. They're filled with rage. And they felt all the more compelled to go and hunt down Abner. So they keep pushing their army further, trying to catch the fleeing army of Israel. But before this battle turns even more deadly than it already is, Abner literally takes the high ground and can negotiate a truce. Let's pick up reading in verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. 
at the trumpet's blast, the armies return to their capital cities. The death, death tolls of this battle are reported in verse 30 and verse 31. David's army lost 19 men plus Asael, but Abner's army had 360 casualties. As the number indicates, Saul's house will continue to grow weaker while David's house continues to grow stronger. During a civil war, there are no winners, right? They're just losers. But if Abner's intention in calling forth this battle was to determine which army the Lord favor, he proved that the Lord was with David's house, not with Ishbosheth's house. But in this messy conflict between Joab and Abner, we are reminded of the messiness of politics, aren't we? The unnecessary death of Asahel reminds us that there are countless victims who fall out of zeal for political rivalries. Abner provoked Joab. Joab doesn't back down from a fight. Abner starts the conflict, and Joab is sure he is going to finish it. You see, every turf war is marked by aggression, violence, vengeance, and pride. Perhaps you've engaged in a few turf wars yourself, maybe in the office, maybe in the church, maybe in your family. But all of your raging and all of your fighting, what does it leave you with? It leaves only with pain, chaos, and grief. The bloodshed and chaos of this civil war here reminds us that our hope today is not in trigger-happy generals, but it's in a prince of peace. After the trumpet's blast diffuses the conflict, David's men take the slain body of Asahel and they bury him in verse 32. Where do they bury him? They bury him in Bethlehem. The call back to Bethlehem returns us to where Samuel first anointed a young shepherd boy named David to be king. And it's in Bethlehem that we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will halt the raging nations as our Prince of Peace. You see, Jesus is not just the king who brings peace among brothers, but he is the one who brings us peace with God by faith. If you have grown tired of the fighting, you've grown tired of the partisan politics, if you've grown tired of the international tensions between countries, if you have grown tired of the chaos of the kingdoms of earth, take heart. The Lord Jesus' kingdom is coming, and it is one of peace. And if you find yourself as a combatant on the turf wars of your life, remember, Christian, you are a citizen of the kingdom who has a prince of peace. Indeed, you're not just a citizen, but you are a son. And as Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, where they shall be called sons of God. And so David's kingdom continues to advance, even with Joab and Abner's buffoonery. And at the start of chapter 3, the author gives his summary, his evaluation, his shorthand of how this civil war seems to be going. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Verse 2 through 5, these next few verses, report on the growth of David's household, particularly by his sons, Amnon, Chilion, Absalom, Adonijah, and Shephatiah, and Ethrium. So several of those sons in that list there will become major characters later on in 2 Samuel. But David's growing house also begins to reveal David's vulnerabilities, his love for a variety of women. Notice in that 
little survey of David's house, born in Hebron, how each of those sons has a different mother coming from David's wives and concubines. A king like all the nations showed his wealth and his power through the many wives he had and the harem of his concubines. But David was supposed to be God's king. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God permitted Israel to have a king, but in that text, the Lord warned that the king must not acquire many wives lest his heart be turned away. David's desire to take women will cause massive problems for his kingdom later on. David's love for women is imitated by his son, Solomon. Solomon's heart would be turned to idolatry by the influence of foreign women who turned his heart after other gods. The introduction of David's growing house and including the many women involved in it foreshadows the coming struggles that he will face and his own sins that he will commit. But while David's house grows stronger, the bumbling Ishbosheth makes a foolish miscalculation. His kingdom and its survival depends on Abner. Remember, he's the kingmaker. He has to have Abner's backing if his kingdom will survive. But Ishbosheth has too much of his father's paranoia in him. And by his delusions, he pushes the one man he needs by his side away and into the arms of David. Let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah and the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet, you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. <coughs> Ishbosheth needed Abner, but he's also threatened by Abner and his power, and his influence. Abner could easily use his influence to overthrow Ishbosheth, and he could, if he wanted to, make himself king of Israel. But the paranoia of Saul tends to be a genetic trait, if you will, runs in the family. And so he accuses Abner with no pretense, no evidence whatsoever, of going into one of Saul's concubines. And a king's concubine was considered a part of his household and indeed a part of his inheritance in those days. And so if Abner went into Saul's concubine, Rizpah, he would be making a claim to the throne for himself. This is why David's son Absalom will publicly engage David's harem on the rooftop during his rebellion to claim the throne for himself. But Ishbosheth's accusations here is all fantasy, it's all delusions, it's all conspiracy theories. The very thought of such an accusation just appalls Abner. How could Abner, who has shown over and over again this hesed, this steadfast love for Saul's house, how could it now be repaid with such a devilish and unfounded accusation? 
He's been loyal to Saul. He's labored to preserve the house of Saul all his life, and even now through Ishbosheth. And now this punk kid accuses him of such evil? The, the accusation seems to wise old Abner up, and he stops denying what he knows to be true. David is the Lord's king. The Lord has rejected Saul's house. And so Abner deflects from the kingdom of Israel, and then he throws his influence, his weight, his power, his loyalty behind David as king. And Abner and David will make a covenant together. But David requires, as a sign of good faith, a sign of trust, that Abner bring back with him Michael, Saul's daughter. Let's read about this turn of events in verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Abner makes an offer to David. He pledges to throw his full support behind David. And Abner promises to use all of the influence he's gained with Israel to bring them all under David's rule. This is what David wanted, a united kingdom. But David had already begun to use his wives as a way to make political alliances. You look back in verse 3, he married the daughter of Thalami, king of Geshur. Political alliance with the northern kingdom. So in David's early days in the house of Saul, the, if you remember, the king Saul had given Michael to David as his first wife. Now, the marriage offer was a ploy from Saul. It was one of his tactics, one of his tricks to try to get David killed at the hand of the Philistines. But David goes out and he pays the bridal price. He kills the Philistines and he earns her hand in marriage, much to Saul's chagrin. And you might remember also that once David had to go on the run, fleeing from the house of Saul, Saul takes Michael and marries her off to another man, treating David as good as dead. But now... David wants his first wife back, Michael. And having Saul's daughter in his household would help him, would help him greatly to make his claim to the throne and indeed bring all of the tribe of Benjamin into his leadership if he has Saul's daughter. So Abner uses his influence to convince Ishbosheth to take Michael from her current husband, who loved her, and then give her to David. And we get a Vivid description, don't we, of her husband's grief, Paltiel, weeping as she is taken from her. He's chasing her, crying. So who gets blamed for using Michael as a political pawn? Well, there are many men culpable here, but I think the severest blame does go to Saul himself, who first used her as such. But the vivid grief here of Paltiel weeping foreshadows what is to come when David will take the wife of Uriah for himself. Even as David comes into the kingdom of a united Israel, the author of Samuel 
keeps tipping us off, foreshadowing of his future failures. David is Israel's greatest king, but he's no perfect king, is he? With Abner's loyalties, with Abner's influence proven true with the return of Michael, Abner gets to work drumming up all the political support for King David. And he persuades all the elders of Israel, hey, David is the one God is blessing. He is the one we need to support. Let's stop supporting this kid Ishbosheth. Let's rally our support around David. And so Abner begins to use his influence to change the allegiances of the elders of the tribe, and he brings them to support David. At this point, whatever's left of Saul's house is is crumbling away rather quickly. And Abner's success in bringing all of Israel under David's kingdom begins to agitate David's nephew and his general, Joab. Because as David is feasting with Abner and gives the famed general the freedom to come and go in peace, Joab returns from the battlefield and he sees what's taking place. He sees Abner's favored status in David's kingdom and he's a little perturbed by it. Let's read Joab's response in verse 22 of chapter 3. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with him. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Jab, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. Abner is once again faced with an opponent who raises an unjust accusation against him. This time, not from Ishbosheth, but from Joab. And Joab, in his boldness, goes to the king and starts rebuking him, rebuking David's decision. Your trust in Abner is misguided. He's only going to betray you. He's just getting the intel and reporting about Ishbosheth. And although Joab is devoted and loyal to David, we'll see over the course of 2 Samuel, he has a tendency to brashness and indeed to violence. Let's read what happens next in verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sariah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died with the blood of Asael, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Joab, the general, becomes Joab the murderer. He strikes down Abner in cold blood at the city gate. Now, what motivates Joab to kill and murder Abner? There there are most likely three motives mingled together in this man's heart. The primary motive that the text clearly gives us is vengeance. 
Joab killed Abner because Abner killed his brother. But secondly, we also see that Joab didn't trust Abner. So perhaps Joab is acting like a self-imposed hitman to eliminate what he believed was a Judas in David's kingdom, even though Joab had no proof that Abner was a Judas. And then thirdly, Joab probably was growing jealous of Abner as well. He's a famed military general, and now he is beginning to outshine him in influence in David's household because of his ability to rally all of Israel around him. Abner was a threat to Joab's favored position in David's kingdom. So he gutted him like a fish at the gates of Hebron. David's response is also really revealing, isn't it? David strongly rebukes Joab's act of murder and even curses Joab's household. But the king's justice demanded capital punishment, not a slap on the wrist. Perhaps David thought that he couldn't afford to lose both Abner and Joab at the same time, two strategic men, two strategic lieutenants in his kingdom. But David thought he couldn't afford to lose them. So here we see another one of David's rather significant vulnerabilities to his kingdom. Not just lust, but partiality as well. David withholds here the demands of justice. He overlooks offenses when it involves his own family, his own nephew. For his nephew, Joab, slap on the wrists. And he'll do the same thing again when his son Amnon rapes his daughter. David will be soft when it comes to Amnon and Absalom. Though David will be a righteous king who rules with God's justice, he has a tendency to leave injustice unpunished when it involves his own house. Nepotism is emerging as a black spot on the spotless king of the new Judah. So David grieves over Abner, and he calls the people to do the same. His sorrow, described here in 2 Samuel, showcases his innocence. Joab's murder puts David's hope of uniting a kingdom in jeopardy. But David's grief and declaration of innocence does protect him from any accusations of subterfuge. After all, what would David gain by hiring a hit on Abner, his new loyal ambassador throughout all Israel? So Joab acted without the king's authority. David makes that clear. And therefore, Joab alone bears the blame for this grave crime. But David distances himself from the commander, and he refuses to be sullied by his violence. Let's read verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. David even goes on to write a lament for Abner. He fasts in mornings. He continues his public rebuke of his sister's sons, and David contrasts himself with Joab and Abishai. The brothers are violent men. Look at verse 39. David says that he is gentle, even though he's king. But... David fails to recognize that as king, he is the one divinely appointed to execute the justice of God. Look at what he says in verse 39. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Well, David, that's your job. You bear the sword. You don't bear the sword of government in vain. Today was not a day for David to be gentle, but to bring the Lord's justice. David's kingdom is not going to be a perfect kingdom. 
Though David preserves his innocence in terms of how he comes into the United Kingdom, into the throne, we are beginning to see more and more of his vulnerabilities that will lead him into sin. And David's failures will destabilize his kingdom and indeed nearly end it if it were not for God's grace. But there is, church, a perfect king who will come. The the misguided Joab nearly thwarted the coming of David's kingdom. But God's kingdom isn't contingent on the goodness of its citizens, but on the goodness of its king. And the church has a king who is way better, far better than David, a righteous king who is perfect in justice and without sin. And praise God that his kingdom's survival doesn't depend upon our goodness, but Jesus' goodness. The church has its share of Joab's in her midst, doesn't she? Loyal, zealous, ambitious, sinful people who in their foolishness seem to hinder God's kingdom more than advance it. The church is filled with people who do not accurately reflect the ideals of the kingdom. We can be divisive, can't we? Mean, violent, arrogant, ordering our own hit jobs against God's people. All in the name of Jesus, I'm doing the Lord's work. We fail, like the the hypocrites we are, to live out the virtues of Jesus' kingdom, the ideals of our king. And like David, the Lord Jesus ought to curse us and condemn us in our sin. And indeed, in our sin, the Lord ought to put us to death. That is what his justice demands. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus the king lays down his life on the cross to satisfy the demands of God's justice. He pays the penalty for our sin, past, present, and future. And so he is able to use us, Joabs, with all of our faults, with all of our sins, with all of our shortcomings, he is able to use us for his glory and the advancement of his church. Anytime you are discouraged by something a Christian does or something a Christian says, be reminded. Be reminded that the kingdom of God endures because of the goodness of the king, not the goodness of the followers. And it is by God's grace in the cross that he keeps any one of us, Joabs, in his kingdom. The crumbling kingdom, though, of Ishbosheth comes to ruin ultimately in chapter 4 through the hands of zealous assassins. David's rival to the throne will be eliminated. Let's read what happens in chapter 4, verse 1. The crumb, uh, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechem, sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also was counted part of Benjamin, the Beerothites, fled to Gideon and had been sojourners there to this day. So who are these two men? Who are Baana and Rechab? Well, these are men from within the tribe of Benjamin. Their people, the Berathites, probably fled when Saul put the Gibeonites to death early in his reign. So they were refugees because of Saul's actions. So though it's difficult to know all their background with just the little information we're given here, these are two men from within Saul's tribe, Benjamin, who had a grudge against the house of Saul. These details are emphasized here to show us David's innocence. 
He did nothing. He had nothing to do with this ploy, with this plot of assassination. He's innocent. He had nothing to do with this murder. The assassins did not come from David's house, the text stresses, but from within Saul's house. But before we see these two men make their strike, verse 4 takes a bit of an aside and introduces us to another figure who will be important later on in 2 Samuel, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Let's read about him in verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So, So why does the narrator sort of interrupt here and mention Jonathan's son? Well, he does so to help us understand why he wasn't considered a successor to the throne. By drawing our attention to his age, he's a little kid, and his disability, he's handicapped. Mephibosheth was a child, and he was a disabled child at that. And even though Jonathan had publicly declined the throne, the death of Ishbosheth would have left no other member from the house of Saul to claim the throne. And so after Ishbosheth's death, there's no move taken by Israel to try to take Jonathan's lame boy and put him on the throne. Mephibosheth doesn't fit the profile of a king like all the nations that Israel wanted. And though the crippled boy doesn't meet the criteria for Israel's asked-for king, the helpless boy is perfectly qualified for the king's grace and generosity. As we'll soon see, David will remember this young lad, and he will remember the covenant he made with Jonathan, and he will adopt this young boy into his own household and treat him as a son But after a brief interruption introducing us to Mephibosheth, we return now to the conspirators and their plan. Let's read in verse 5. Now the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Baana, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. The two men kill Ishbosheth in just about the most cowardly way possible. Right? They sneak into his house while he's taking his afternoon nap, and they stab him in the gut, and they cut off his head, and then they get out of town and head to Hebron to go show it to David. Ishbosheth, it's interesting, meets an identical end to his father with a belly wound and a beheading. So the assassins make their way, rather jovial, excited that they're able to deliver to David the skull of Ishbosheth. David's going to be pleased. But like the Amalekite messenger at the start of 2 Samuel, you might remember, the men expect to find David pleased by their actions, but these two men have committed murder. And they do so thinking that as they commit sin, they are carrying out the vengeance of God. Isn't that strange? Don't we often do the same? Don't people do so today? Don't they tend to rationalize their sins? by garbing it with an imagined divine purpose? And at this point, you probably expect what will happen. 
The author frames this transitionary period between Saul and David's reign with bookends of the execution of justice, one the Amalekite, one on these two assassins. And just as David killed the Amalekite messenger who confessed with his own mouth to killing Saul, so will David sentence these two murderers to death. Let's read verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Beerothite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David took these wicked men and he sentenced them to death. With Ishbosheth's passing, David is now able to unite all of Israel under his leadership, as we'll see in the next chapter. But though we've seen David's shortcomings, we have seen David, even with his shortcomings, preserve his innocence. He is God's king. He has a claim to the throne that will soon be recognized by all of Israel. The kingdom of David is coming and has come. And he begins his reign over Judah, and soon he will reign over all of Israel. But what do these few chapters in 2 Samuel, with all their drama and all this tumultuous time in history, what, is, what does this have to teach us this morning? David is the king of Judah, but yet the turmoil of these years are chaotic, they're violent, they're dramatic. We've seen Abner's failures. We've seen Ishbosheth's failures. We've seen Joab's failures. We've even seen David's failures, haven't we? But nevertheless, Despite all the messiness, all the sin, all the weakness of these human actors, the Lord sovereignly uses them to advance his kingdom. By God's sovereign grace, he will unite all of Israel together under David's rule. And the Lord will even use, he is able to use even the wicked actions of evil men to bring forth his good purposes. He's that sovereign. The Lord will unite all of his people under the prosperous reign of his servant David, who is his chosen king. But as we'll see, David is a great king. He's not the perfect king. He's not the king we ultimately need. He will fail. And in future generations, his house will implode as they are carried off into exile in Babylon. But nevertheless, the Lord has promised David a forever kingdom. And it is through the house of David that the Lord Jesus Christ would be born in that town of Bethlehem. And he would come preaching a gospel of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And through all the faults of God's people, he continues to advance the kingdom of his son. I don't know about you, but I find that very good news. As we look back over the last 2,000 years of church history, there are a lot of blemishes on the church, isn't there? The church became co-opted in the first few centuries by the empire of Rome under Constantine, coming under the umbrella of the state, which was a corrupting influence in the church. Powerful men would use their money to buy prestigious church offices. 
Church leaders would sell indulgences to raise funds for church construction. But it's not just the Catholic church that we can indict here, is it? We can indict the Protestants as well. Luther's anti-Semitism and his support for the Peasants' War, Calvin's execution of Michael Servetus in Geneva, the church's twisting of the Bible to justify chattel slavery of Africans for centuries. Even in, even in recent decades, we can point to the church's faults, her slowness in addressing the issue of abortion, or the church's resistance to desegregation in this country. Throughout church history, you will find that the church frequently, frequently makes a mess of things, just like Abner and just like Joab. But yet, despite our failures, the Lord continues to advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God cannot be shaken, even by boneheads like us who are citizens of it. And so the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because the kingdom of God keeps advancing by the sovereign hand of God who advances it in and even through the foibles of his people because the hope for the kingdom of God rests not on our goodness, but the goodness of our King who has come and who is coming again. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we recognize our own failures, our own sins. But Lord, we are grateful that the security, the certainty of your kingdom is built upon Jesus and Jesus alone, the perfect King of justice and righteousness who lays down his life for sinners like us. Lord, I do pray for anyone here this morning who has yet to make themselves a citizen of your kingdom, who have yet to turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, that you would awaken their heart, that you would cause them to repent, that you would cause them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are grateful that even as citizens of your kingdom, that you use us to advance your kingdom, even with all of our weaknesses and failures. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to put our faith in your king, and Lord, that your kingdom may come in and through our ministries. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.